Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. All right, a time for us to get started. It's customary at these events to begin by acknowledging that the University of Sydney is built on Aboriginal land. And as I mentioned last night, I think that given the, the context and the content of um, what we're going to hear about today, that, that won't be lost on anybody. So I want to welcome you to the University of Sydney. My name is Nick Enfield. I am the director of the Sydney Social Science and Humanities Advanced Research Centre, which is supporting the visit of Professor Sylvie Poirier, who is our guest speaker this evening. She's going to be speaking on engaged anthropology, collaborative research and the Atikamekw First Nation. Professor Poirier is a well-known anthropologist both in Canada where she works with the Atikamekw of Haute-Maurice, Quebec, and in Australia where she works with the Kukacha people of the Australian Western Desert. Her focus includes theories of culture, semiotics of culture, ontological anthropology, anthropology of dreams, cosmologies, post-colonialism, indigenous knowledge and territoriality, and the decolonization of research. In 2015, she received a tribute to social innovation from Laval University for the virtual website museum titled Atikamek Kinokewin, or Atikamek Living Memory. The site was developed in close collaboration with the Atikamekw Nation Council and the active participation of Atikamekw experts to document and enhance the traditional knowledge of the Atikamekw Nation and to promote its transmission to all Atikamekw and especially the younger generations as well as the primary and secondary schools of the three Atikamekw communities, Wemotashi, Obijuan and Manawan. Her recent books include book edited with Francoise Dussard, Entangled Territorialities, 2005, A World of Relationships, and 2004, uh, co-edited with uh, John Klammer and Eric Schwimmer, Figured Worlds, Ontological Obstacles in Intercultural Relations. Uh, So it's our great uh, pleasure and privilege to have you here. Just um, a word about the proceedings, so um, we're going to uh, here at Professor Poirier's lecture and as is usual in uh, our Sydney Ideas series we uh, like to open up the floor for discussion and, conver- and conversation so um, if you've got uh, issues you'd like to raise for, for discussion in the last half hour uh, write them down because we'll open up the floor for, for discussion um, uh, you know in the last in the last half hour before we finish uh, at 7:30. Uh, so, uh, with that, uh, let me welcome you to the floor, uh, Professor Sylvie Poirier. Thank you, Nick. Good evening. So, to start with, I'd like to thank the University of Sydney and Gaynor MacDonald for having invited me here. It's a pleasure to be with here, with you tonight to share uh, some of my work with the Atikamek, and at the same time I'm having a break from Quebec winter. It's very nice. 
Since its beginnings, anthropology has faced disciplinary crisis, as well as being nourished by the very debates that question its legitimacy, its role, and its social and political responsibilities and forms of engagement. Following the crisis of representation, Clifford Goertz wrote in 1988 that the work of the ethnographer has turned morally, politically, and epistemologically delicate. Thirty years later, the challenge of constantly revisiting, questioning our ethical, political, epistemological, and ontological positioning has become a part of being an ethnographer within the process and project of decolonizing anthropology. Today I will reflect on these issues by taking the example of my research work and engagement with the Atikamekw First Nation in Quebec since the early 1990s, reflecting on what it means for me to do collaborative research with indigenous people and how we can work together towards the decolonization of our methodologies and of the discipline itself. First, I wish to say a few words about debates and controversies which are intrinsic to our discipline. These may concern the scientific value and epistemological grounds of our ethnographic work and anthropological analysis, or the forms that should take our ethical, social, and political engagement. These kinds of questioning, which are a part of being an anthropologist, are from our point of view expressions of our sense of responsibilities towards the people we are working with, irrespective of how each anthropologist may view such responsibility. Such debates and questioning are also a sign of the vitality and relevance of our discipline in a rapidly changing world, a world where social injustice and inequalities are increasing every day, but also a globalized world going through a crisis of alterity. Amongst these debates and controversies within the discipline of anthropology, two are worth mentioning here in relation to the topic of my talk. The first one relates to anthropology's commitment and responsibility in understanding and translating cultural and ontological differences. The other debate relates to the forms that should take our ethical and political engagement with the people we are working with. The first debate is the controversy back in the early 1990s between Marshal Salins and Gananath Obeyi Sekere on the visit of Captain Cook to Hawaii in 1779 and his, his death a few weeks later under the hands of a Polynesian man. According to Obeyi Sekere, Captain Cook's death was a murder. According to Salins, his death was a ritual sacrifice. We are dealing here with two rather different interpretations of the same event. In his analysis, Ubi Sekiri brings forth a so-called universal common sense and practical reason to argue that the Polynesians murdered Captain Cook, seeing in him a man, but also an enemy and an invader. Salins, for his part, takes a rather different analytical avenue and argues that the death of Cook is the death of the god Lono, a divinity associated with fertility and human reproduction. According to the Polynesian ritual calendar at the time of Cook's visit on Hawaii, the god Lono, who may take different forms to make himself visible, 
vegetal animal or human form had to be sacrificed at the beginning of each year in order for the world to go on. In his analysis, Salins opted to take seriously, that is, as another rationality, Hawaiian cosmology and ontology at the time of their encounter, while Obeisekeri imposed on the Hawaiian a Western Cartesian rationality, claiming it to be universal. As Viverios de Castro has so aptly, aptly remarked, taking something seriously begins by not neutralizing, neutralizing it. Approaching cosmological and ontological differences seriously implies suspending the paradigm of universalism, which has proved itself a most effective tool in the neutralization of the thought and cosmologies of others. There is no need here to deepen further this controversy. No doubt this debate between two prominent figures of the discipline raises major question, not only about cultural and ontological differences, but also about how we are as anthropologists to take seriously what the others say about their world, about other ways of being, knowing, and relating to the world. Another point I wish, I wish to make here is that as anthropologists, we should never lose sight of what I consider as one of our main responsibilities, and that is understand and translate difference in alterity, understand and translate the multiplicity of worlds, other epistemologies and ontology, and work towards the genuine recognition and the legitimacy of such multiplicity. Another debate worth mentioning here, and again very briefly, is the one between Roy Dandrade and Nancy Shepard-Dukes, in a 1995 issue of Current Anthropology on objectivity versus militancy. For Dandrade, the enemy is those who hold a moral model of anthropology and are therefore willing to sacrifice objectivity for moral engagement. For Shepard Hughes, the enemy is those who refuse moral and political engagement. This is an ongoing debate in anthropology between objectivity and engagement, and there exists a myriad of positions. For my part, I consider somehow both of these positions as unsatisfying. On the one hand, so-called objectivity as a positivist stand does not allow for the expression of other rationalities, other epistemologies. Scientific objectivity, as it is usually understood, considers that my knowledge of the world is independent of my relation with that world. It places the observer, the social scientist, in a self-proclaimed authoritative and so-called neutral position. Not only is objectivity a fallacy, an illusion of science and the scientist, it does not consider in the equation the relationship with the other as an intersubjective relations. Militancy, for its part, as propounded by Shepard Hughes, and as a form of political and moral engagement, brings the anthropologist on the public arena, but that does not allow sufficient space for the expression of the other's voices in their own terms. In the case of Shepard Hughes, she takes on herself to speak in the name of the people she wishes to represent. In both of these positions, objectivity and militancy do not allow space for equitable and reciprocal relationships. They both place the anthropologists in an 
active position. I think that as ethnographers and anthropologists, whether we define ourselves as engaged or not, we should at all times remain aware of not substituting our voice for the voices of those, in my case, indigenous groups, we are aiming to accompany in their claims, their life projects, and struggles towards social justice and self-determination. In the last few decades in Canada, this has become particularly true in the fields of indigenous studies. A major aspect of our work and responsibility as anthropologists is to keep producing thick descriptions. In my experience, deep ethnography and engagement are not antithetical and contradictory. Deep ethnography is in itself a form of engagement and advocacy, a way to understand whom the indigenous people we are working with are, to better understand their entangled worlds, and within these, their own life projects. With such understanding, we are then in a better position to accompany them in their endeavors and struggles, of course, if they invite us to do so. In addition, when they do invite us to do so, we have to respect the terms in which they are envisioning our collaboration and actions. Furthermore, in today's context, thick descriptions imply, implies also documenting and analyzing indigenous responses to various forms of neo-colonial state violence, structural, symbolic, and ontological violence. Our first and foremost aim and responsibility as ethnographers and anthropologists is to get an understanding of the world of the people we are working with prior to any form of engagement with them, though fieldwork is in itself already a form of engagement. What I mean to say here is that as anthropologists, we are there first to understand the world of the indigenous people we are working with. We are not there to help them. Many professionals and NGO workers would, would indeed approach the people by claiming right from the start that they are there to help them. Quite a few anthropologists have also the habit to say that they want to help people. By definition, a helping relationship is a one-way relationship that does not allow for exchange and reciprocity. It is also an unequal relationship, assuming that those who need help are not in a position to help themselves or to help us, and assuming that we, as professional and Westerners, do not need help. We are so used in being in a position of power and in an authoritative position that it has become an automatic reflex to say that we are there to help and that our work is to help them and most of the time to help them to become more like us. I think this is something, something I became aware of uh, over the 1980s while I was doing field work in Balgo, an Aboriginal community of the Australian Western Desert. The only way the whites would approach the Aboriginal people was to say that they wished to help them, establishing from the start an unequal relationships most of them were indeed well-intentioned people, but that is not my point here. They did not realize that a helping relationship might be dehumanizing for the one who receives help. I could feel the great discomfort of my Aboriginal friends used to relations of reciprocity. 
More recently, two Australian anthropologists, Emma Kowal and Tess Leah, have produced thick descriptions of these kind of helping and usually non-reciprocal relationships. In today's context, anthropology matters in indigenous studies and issues. In an era that advocate, advocates for decolonizing research, the terms of the relationship between anthropologists and indigenous communities and interlocutors have changed significantly and I think for the better. First, these relationships have become more egalitarian and reciprocal. Second, they allow or should allow for the expression of indigenous epistemologies, ontologies, and temporalities within the research process. In other words, the decolonizing project seeks to reimagine and rearticulate power, change, and knowledge through a multiplicity of epistemologies, ontologies, and axiologies. A collaborative research as reciprocal research should aim at the decolonization of the relationship between the researcher and her interlocutors and should allow for a genuine dialogue between Western and indigenous epistemologies and ontologies. I see collaborative research as a transformative process for the indigenous and non-indigenous co-researchers. Co I will now turn, uh, now turn to my long-term experiences and engagement with the Atikamekw First Nation. However, and before doing so, I think it is important to mention that my first fieldwork was in an Aboriginal community of the Australian Western Desert, where I lived for three years and a half in the 1980s. Since then, I've been back for short periods. My last day was in 2013 for one month. It is with my Aboriginal friends that I learned to be an ethnographer. They taught me to listen, to observe, to be patient, to respect, and to relate, the basic qualities of the ethnographer. With my Aboriginal friends, and later on with the Atikamekw, I embarked on the long, long road of decolonizing myself and my practice. The Atikamekw nation number around 7,000 people who live in three communities, Wemantashi, Obejuan, and Manuan, in the rich watershed of the boreal forests in north-central Quebec. I had a few pictures, at least give you a little idea of the territory I'm talking about, north-central Quebec. Nitaskinan is the word they use for their ancestral territory. While a growing number of Atikamekw are now moving to nearby towns and cities for studying or working, they do maintain strong links with their families and community. For those more familiar with the region, the Atikamekw are the southern neighbors of the James Bay Cree, who have signed the first modern treaty in Canada in 1975. Like other First Nations across Canada, the Atikamekw Nation is engaged under the Canadian Comprehensive Land Claim Policy in an arduous negotiating process with the federal and provincial governments towards a comprehensive land claim agreement since the early 80s, which, meant, which means nearly 40 years, with no tangible results to date. Unlike their northern neighbors, 
the James Bay Cree. The Atikamek have never signed any treaty with the federal and the provincial states, which means that they have never ceded, sold, or surrounded their territories or agreed to extinguish their titles over the extent of their traditional land. However, since the early part of the 20th century, their territories have been depleted and transformed by non-indigenous activities such as extensive logging, construction of dams, abusive, abusive sport hunting and fishing, resort leases, among, among others. Nevertheless, over the extent of their ancestral territory, the Atikamek continue to claim and put into practice their own jurisdiction and land tenure system, their own law, and to occupy, though on an irregular and uneven basis, their family territories through hunting, fishing, and gathering activities, affirm, affirming thus their ongoing presence and claims to the forest land. It must be stressed also that they continue to feel responsible towards the parts of their forest land which have been completely depleted by forest activities and the construction of dams. It is for them, and it will always be their lands, as it is there that their ancestors reside. One of the main reasons why they have not signed any agreement to this day comes from their opposition to the federal extinguishment policy. The Canadian government requires that the extinguishment of their ancestral title be part of the final agreement. I must remind here that indigenous ancestral titles are recognized by the Canadian Constitution of 1982. The Atikamek, for their part, see the extinguishment clause as a betrayal towards their ancestors and future generation, as a betrayal towards their historical and social distinctiveness as a nation. From my perspective, the extinguishment policy is a form of neocolonial violence. From the perspective of the state, it is to provide certainty, to render the rights of Aboriginal people certain and well-defined, mostly for current and future investors and investment projects on their land. In view of the slowness of the negotiation process towards a final agreement for a modern treaty, in September 2014, the Atikamek Nation made a declaration of sovereignty, a symbolic gesture that had no force of law, they received a major a media coverage, but it had no political impact at the provincial and federal levels. I had, and, and I mean, I had the, the declaration of sovereignty, but it's, you can't read it, really. Leave it there. My research work with the Atikamek started in 19, 1991 with a short-term contract work. When the Council of the Atikamek Nation first approached me to conduct research work for them in the context of a specific land right issue, we mutually agreed that my anthropological expertise would serve their political and life projects as much as their knowledge, their realities, and struggles for self-determination would serve my anthropological project. From my point of view, this distinction is very important and allows for more collaborative and equitable relationships between indigenous and non-indigenous co-researchers. At the time, there was a cause of disagreement between somaticamic families who had built permanent camps on their ancestral land and a local town council over municipal taxes for resort leases. 
The town council wanted these Atikamek family to pay annual taxes, just like the few Quebecois families who had cottages along the river. The Atikamek argued that based on the family, family's historical and customary affiliation with that particular territory, they should be treated differently from the vacationers. With the help of an Atikamek research assistant and interpreter, our task was to demonstrate the ancestral and historical presence of the Atikamek families in the area. We produced genealogical charts or family histories, maps of hunting territories. After our report was completed, the town council agreed to the demand of the Atikamek. No taxes on their permanent camps have since been requested. For the Atikamek Nation, it was a small yet significant victory within their broader political agenda of achieving recognition of their land rights and ancestral title. For me, as for them, this short-term contract work was the starting point of a long-term relationship of trust and further collaborative researchers. Since then, all my research work with them has focused on Atikamek contemporary relationships with their land, adopting different angles of inquiry. These include the Atikamek Lantana system, the knowledge cosmological system, the epistemological and ontological principles underlying such system, their hunting activities over a seasonal cycle. The Atikamek contemporary relationship with the forest land includes also the land claim and negotiation process mentioned earlier. More recently, in the last 15 years, my work has focused on their knowledge of the forest land and the transmission of that knowledge across the generation. And it is mostly at that level at that, level that we have evolved a collaborative project that I will expose in a few minutes. Uh, we, so this, the main objective of this project is to contribute to the documentation, valorization, and transmission of Atikamek knowledge in today's context. For the Atikamek, as for the great majority of indigenous peoples in the world, the transmission of local knowledge has become an issue of great concern. They are aware that they have to explore and evolve novel ways, means, and avenues for the intergenerational inter transmission of local knowledge. In my work, I'm also giving a particular attention to what I'm calling the entangled world and entangled territoriality. That is how they have to share their territories with the settlers' industries like forestry and logging activities, spore hunting and fishing, hydroelectric projects. Entanglement is found also at the legal and political level, which is the coexistence of Atikamek law, their own jurisdiction and customary lanterner system with Quebec administrative and legal systems over the extent of the Atikamek family territories. We can talk also of an entangled knowledge system, considering that the youth go to school at the same time that they grow up and are socialized in their own language, knowledge, and value systems. The Atikamek language is the first language they learn before French. As kids, they often accompany their grandparents to visit family territories and learn at least some of them to hunt and fish. They grow up in their own epistemological and ethical principles. In 1993, I started as assistant professor at the Department of Anthropology at University Laval in Quebec. All the research grants I've received since then, mostly from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, 
have been elaborated and conducted in close collaboration with the Council of the Atikamek Nation. I should add here that such partnership with indigenous nations have been at least since the early 1980s in the agenda of most Canadian anthropologists working with them, mostly in relation to land claim issues. On the other hand, it is only around 2006 that the Social Sciences and Humanities, Re Humanities Research Council of Canada made it compulsory that from now on researchers had to be conducted with in indigenous people and no more on indigenous people. So emphasis is now put on participatory and collaborative basis. So my question is, what does it mean when we take collaborative research seriously? As research based on equitable relationships and as a transformative process for all co-researchers, indigenous and non-indigenous. Two other points must also be highlighted here. Being a nation without a treaty and without recognition of their land rights implies that the Atikamek have no access to royalties and financial resources that would allow them to support their own researchers. Any research grant money from an outside researcher is thus welcome as long as the nation is consulted right from the start meaning from the first stages of the elaboration of the research grant. Second point I wish, I wish to highlight, within the comprehensive land claim policy that I mentioned earlier, the Canadian government lends to the First Nation concern the money they need to engage into the process and to conduct traditional land use and occupancy studies. The Atikamek, with the help of anthropologists, have been conducting such studies since the early 1980s. While this loan from the Canadian government allows them to conduct such studies, it means also that the First Nation is contracting an enormous debt towards the federal state, with no warranty whatsoever that their land rights will one day be recognized to their satisfaction. Nearly 40 years later, the enormous debt that the Atikamek Nation has contracted makes it impossible for them to withdraw from the negotiating table, even if they wanted to. This is a major question that I do not have the time to address here. All through the 1990s, my collaborative researches with the Atikamek were mostly oriented toward the documentation of their law and customary lanterner system in a dynamic perspective, the anthropological proof needed for the negotiation process. Furthermore, I participated for a while as an expert anthropologist and alongside the Atikamek representatives at the negotiating tables with the representatives of the federal and provincial governments. Surely these tables has, have a tremendous ethnographic potential. I must say, however, that I gradually became disappointed, disillusioned, by the ingrained nature of the colonial and unequal relations of power that occurred around the negotiating table by the paternalistic and neo-colonial attitude of the state representatives towards the Atikamek, 
by their lack of understanding of indigenous realities, by their lack of political will to conduct a fair negotiation and to arrive at an honorable agreement. Others withdrew from the negotiating table. However, that did not deter me, quite the contrary, from working alongside the Atikamek towards improving their self-determination. In the early 2000s, the negotiation process with the federal and provincial governments was on a standstill. The work I was doing with the Atikamek Nation on the political scene had not the impact I had first expected. I decided then to reorient my researchers and my collaboration with them. I strongly felt then that my anthropological expertise and research grants would be much more useful if I used them to document and valorize Atikamek knowledge system, oral history, and language, and to explore with them avenues through which such knowledge could be made more available to the younger Atikamek generations. I consider then as now that if the younger generation have a strong sense of who they are, if they take pride in being Atikamek, then they would be better equipped to continue the political struggles of their forefathers and foremothers towards self-determination. Another major objective in reorienting my research collaboration with the Atikamek was to train some of them in anthropological research methodologies so they would become more confident in engaging with the research process from their own epistemological and ontological perspectives. It must be, must be said at this point, at this point that since the mid-80s, the Council of the Atikamek Nation the, band, the three band councils and the schools in the three communities have evolved and implemented various initiatives in order to promote and valorize their knowledge of the land, their language and oral histories among the younger generations. For example, in the early 1990s, on their own initiative, they implemented in the school, in the primary schools, a bilingual program, Atikamek and French. Another initiative, since the late 1980s, each spring and autumn during the season of migratory birds, they have established what they call cultural weeks, and where the schools and offices are closed over a period of two weeks. It is a time when the families move then to their family territories, while others move to town to visit relatives and do shopping. Indigenous peoples like the Atikamek are very much aware that it is not only their knowledge system that are jeopardized through compulsory schooling and the processes of modernization and individuation, but also the processes of intergenerational transmission and the relational and experiential dimensions of such transmission. My aim was to contribute even in an infinitesimal manner to these local initiatives and endeavor. In the early 2000s, I turned my attention to their documentation center located in the office of the Nations Council. Unbeknown to most Atikamek, the center has archived for the last 30 years a tremendous amount of data on the Atikamek nation. Among these, hundreds of hours of recordings with the elders maps indicating family territories, hunting itineraries, and hundreds of place names. 
This data had been collected by the Atikamek and a few anthropologists to support the anthropological proof in the negotiation process. And until recently was considered by the political Atikamek representatives too politically sensitive to be made public. It took me a couple of years to convince the Council of the Atikamek Nation that such information would be much more useful and politically stronger if it was made available to the nation as a whole. So in 2006 and again in 2012, I received grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for a project on the documentation, valorization, and transmission of Atikamek knowledge of the forest land. The Atikamek named the project Atikamek Kinukewin, which means Atikamek Living Memory. Over the years, the project acquired a life on its own, in involving, as I will describe soon, people of all generations. The core of our research team was formed of about eight people, myself, one or two graduate students, and more or less six Atikamek co-researchers, men and women, adult, elders, some of them expert hunters. I present briefly here some of the outcomes of our project. One of the first things we did was to digitize a fair amount of the archives we found at the documentation center. Recordings with elders, photos, maps. In order to make easily available and searchable all that documentation, we worked on designing a website, a kind of virtual museum, in which we have inserted the words of the elders, films, videos, photos from the 1940s to today, description of hunting activities, maps, place names, artwork, material culture, and many other things. In 2014, the website Virtual Museum was officially launched in Atikamek Elementary and Secondary Schools. It is now, now used as a pedagogical material and tool in their schools and consulted by Atikamek of all ages at their homes or on their cell phones. The website is bilingual, Atikamek and French, and regularly updated with new material. It has a restricted access, a decision of the Atikamek themselves. Most rewarding, rewarding for our research team, the fact that some Atikamek of all generation told us that as a people, they recognize themselves in the website and can thus relate to it. In the world of the Atikamek, like in most indigenous traditions, the acquisition and the transmission of knowledge emphasize the relational, experiential, and contextual dimensions. First-hand observation and personal experiment are highly valued. Obviously, we are very much aware that the website can in no way replace these dimensions. Our aim is much more modest. We presume that visiting the website may trigger the curiosity and the interest of young Atikamek who may decide afterwards to approach their older kin and join them for a fishing expedition or a moose hunt, for example, or assist an older kin in the tanning of a moose skin or the fabrication of a bark basket. 
Among other activities and realization of the project, we trained a dozen post-secondary ATICAMEC students, young women and men, in research methodologies so they could document their own family knowledge and oral history. Each one of them had to choose a specific topic of inquiry and meet then with some of their elderly kin to document it. Some choose to work on their family genealogy, others on place names, on medicinal plants, on specific hunting practices and technique. The outcome of their research work were then included into the website. We organized also a few outings in the bush from three to five days with the aim to valorize intergenerational relationships and knowledge transmission. Again, one of our main objective was to strengthen among the youth a sense of what it means to be Atikamek in today's context and the pride of being Atikamek and indigenous. The outcomes of our collaborative work are being felt today. Some young people who participated in the project and others who browse regularly through the website told us that our project had a significant impact in their lives. It enhanced their sense of engagement towards their community and nation and the pride they gain as Atikemek made them more confident in their relationship with non-indigenous people. A long-term research collaborator and member of the research team confirmed another outcome, a very important one from my point of view. He told me that in the years that we worked together, he and a few other Atikemek gained the confidence to conduct their own research in accordance with Atikemek ways and values. He added that they now have the confidence and the skills to work side by side and on equal grounds with research teams who approach them every now and then to work on various social issues, health, employment, schooling, justice. As I said earlier, the Research Council of Canada, prior to any grant, makes it compulsory now to work with indigenous people on a collaborative and participatory basis. However, most researchers who approach the Atikamek Nation are not familiar with this kind of research. They don't have a clue of what it means. With the Atikamek, they learn the know-how of collaborative research. So the Atikamek have gained the confidence to impose to non-indigenous researchers their conditions, ways, and temporalities for doing research. I see such outcome as a form of advocacy for my own work to provide to indigenous groups we are working with, provide them with the confidence and the means to conduct their own research and to require, require that non-indigenous researchers work with them on an equal reciprocal and collaborative basis. In March of this year, the Atikamek Nation will open its own research center. The life, expectancy, the life expectancy of this center will depend, though, on the funding they will be able to obtain. I'd like to share now more thoughts on collaborative research and methodologies and on decolonization of research. For myself and my graduate students, as for the Atikamek partners and co-researchers, I think I can say that we lived through those years of working together as a mutual experience in decolonization. 
not only in the ways of doing research, but also in our subjectivities and intersubjectivities. While I brought the grant money to conduct the research, I considered that it was their project. They designed every step of it, decided where we could go and could not go, and at which pace. It was a process, an adventure, that extended over nearly, over nearly 10 years. From my understanding, the process and whatever was acquired through it by all those involved, atikemic and non-atikemic, are as important, if not more important, than the actual outcomes. Collaborative research is a constant process of learning, of exchange, and of decolonization for the anthropologists and the indigenous people involved. Working and engaging with indigenous people, one is constantly reminded that you are a person before being a researcher. When I first started working with them, the Atikamek tested my relational skills and sensitivities much more than my scientific skills. They do the same with each graduate student that I send to work with them. The Atikamek tests them as a person, not as a researcher. The Atikamek made me understand that anthropology matters as long as my engagement with them is solidly anchored in respectful, reciprocal, and equitable relationships. In other words, in relationships of trust. It was my responsibility to build such relationship, considering that the Indians in Canada are not in the habit of trusting white people. And this includes also anthropologists. Now, what kind of methodologies? Surely we could call it a collaborative or participatory methodology, which is what it is. On the other hand, I would prefer to say that it is a decolonizing methodology, which implies a different kind of engagement from the co-researchers, indigenous and non-indigenous. Another term could be a relational methodology, as others have talked of relational epistemology or relational ontology. Relationality is indeed an epistemological and ontological principle in indigenous worlds, in indigenous thought and life worlds, and relatedness is a major social value and practice. First, in a relational methodology, the terms of the relationships between anthropologists and indigenous communities and interlocutors must evolve on a reciprocal and equitable basis. The anthropologist, or any non-indigenous researcher, must let go of a position of power, of an, an equal and author authoritative relationships. Like I said earlier, I never conceive of my relationship with them as a helping relationship. On the contrary, I consider that they help me in becoming a better anthropologist and a better person. For the non-indigenous researchers, reflexivity and humility are qualities and ways of being that need to be worked on and enhanced. Second, Decolonizing methods should allow for the expression of indigenous epistemologies, ontologies, and temporalities within the research process. Like I mentioned earlier, the decolonizing project seeks to reimagine and rearticulate power, change, and knowledge through a multiplicity 
of epistemologies, ontologies, and axiologies. In indigenous life worlds, there is no division between epistemology and ontology, and between knowing and being. Both are closely intertwined. Furthermore, in indigenous thoughts and experiences, being and knowing involve also relationship with the non-humans, land and places, animals, plants, trees, ancestors, and spirit of various kind as social agents. So what does it mean to consider Atikamek epistemology and ontology within the research process itself? It means to inquire into local theories of knowledge. So what is knowledge from an Atikamek perspective? And what are the different kinds of knowledge they might recognize? Common knowledge, family knowledge, secret, sacred knowledge. How is knowledge acquired? Through direct experience, through our own stories, through dreams, through the words of the ancestors? Who is entitled to such and such knowledge? Question of gender, age, family, ties have to be taken into account. These realities became part of the research process itself. The research process was designed along some of these epistemological and ontological principles. In the website, we did consider only what we call common knowledge, that is knowledge available to all. Family knowledge and secret knowledge were not included. For example, ritual knowledge, medicinal plant knowledge were not included in the website. On the other hand, it prompted some of the Atikamek co-researchers to meet with their elders and discuss with them the issues of transmission within the family. Another example of considering Atikamek epistemology and ontology, if one of the Atikamek co-researchers, a member of our co-research team, or one of their family members, had a dream that they consider could inform the orientation of the project, we would be attentive to the dream narrative and give it the attention it deserved. During the research project and process, I have learned many things. Among these, humility, respect, reflexivity. I have learned another temporality in the research process. I have learned to be patient and not impose my ideas, my ways, or my time schedule over the Atikamek I'm working with. I've learned to listen, to decode their silence and their hesitation whenever I ask a question or suggested something. I've learned that there is a major difference between two positions, one that considers that our indigenous interlocutors have the knowledge, the language, the hunting knowledge, oral history, that we anthropologists will objectify to serve the discipline in our own anthropological project. Another position that considers that indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, being, and relating are able to transform the discipline and the researchers from the inside. Their knowledge is not something they have, it is what they are. I accepted to let go of many of the certitudes of our modern culture and of a positivist position. I have learned to appreciate uncertainties and indeterminacy to be open to other ways to conduct research in close collaboration with indigenous partners, to be receptive to their own ways and values. 
A few of the Atikamek co-researchers had a post-secondary degree. However, reading and writing are not their cup of tea. They remained firmly grounded and informed in the ways of an oral tradition. Nevertheless, my graduate students and I made make it a point to have at least one Atikamek co-researcher read over and comment our publication that stemmed from the project. My graduate students who participated in this collaborative endeavor have learned to submit their writings, master and PhD thesis and articles to one or more of their closest Atikamek interlocutors before their publication. Up to now, this exercise has been very positive on both sides as a testimony of a trusting relationship, a relational accountability. Decolonization is unsettling and has to be unsettling, and as such opens up to novel avenues and ways. The decolonization of research concerns all those involved in the process, indigenous and non-indigenous, while the indigenous partners have to regain trust in their own ways of doing things, their own temporalities and epistemological principle, the non-indigenous researchers have to learn humility and to resign an authoritative position and a position of power. Collaborative research has thus a tremendous transforming, transformative potential. The three values of respect relationality and thus reciprocity and responsibility are paramount and part of what Sean Wilson, an indigenous scholar, has termed a relational accountability. I understand these values as being intrinsic to the process of decolonizing anthropology and the anthropologist as a person and a citizen. As anthropologists, we have the responsibility to document and critically analyze social injustice and unequal relations of power and to explore avenues for the recognition and expression of cultural and ontological differences. As anthropologists working with indigenous people, we have to be aware that decolonization means, first of all, the repatriation of indigenous lands and autonomy. I hope that through, I hope that through their participation in this collaborative research, the Atikamek have acquired some tools that could assist them in the expression of their self-determination and sovereignty in their own terms. Over the years, in all my research work with the Atikamek, the land has always been the main protagonist. My work thus is oriented toward the reinforcement and consolidation of Atikamek knowledge, rights, and responsibility over the extent of their ancestral territories. Thank you.